You're listening to a message from Redemption Community Church, a life-giving church in Westchester County, New York. We pray this message encourages you today. Thanks for listening. Welcome to all of you. As today we are continuing the series that we've been in for the past few weeks called Eliminating Hurry. Years ago, I heard a story of a New York City businessman who was vacationing in a small seaside town in Mexico. And one day he was walking on the beach and he saw a fisherman come into the pier and he was admiring this fisherman's catch of fish. And he asked him, how long did it take you to catch those fish? And he said, not very long. He said, what do you do with the rest of your time? Like, why, why don't you fish more? He said, well, most days I sleep in, I fish a little bit. I play with my kids, take a siesta with my wife, and in the afternoon I stroll into the village and I spend time with my friends and I sip wine and we play the guitar. I have a very full and good life. And he said, listen, I have an MBA from Harvard. Let me help you out, okay? He said, here's what you need to do. You need to start fishing more every day. Then you can make more money and then you could buy a bigger fishing boat. And the Mexican fisherman said, okay, then what would I do? He said, well, then with the proceeds from that boat, you could afford to buy a second and a third boat until eventually you would have a whole fleet of fishing vessels. He goes, wow, then what would I do? He said, well, then you could cut out the middleman and you could sell directly to the processing plant. And after time, you could save up enough money to own your own processing plant. You would make a fortune. You could eventually move to Mexico City and then to LA and eventually to New York City where you would run your global fishing enterprise. And the fisherman said, wow, that sounds amazing. How long would that take? He said, 20, 25 years. He goes, but here's where it gets really interesting. He said, after you've built enough value in your company, then you could go public. And if you had a successful IPO, you would make millions. You would be set. And the fisherman said, that sounds amazing. Then what would I do? He said, well, then you could afford to retire, move to a small village like this, seaside village, where you could sleep in most days, fish a little bit. Play with your kids, take a siesta with your wife, and in the afternoon, stroll into the village and hang out with your friends and sip wine and play the guitar. <laughs> Church, let me ask you this question. What if the things that we're currently pursuing are not leading to the life that we truly long for? What if less is more? What if the life that we long for is already within our grasp? See, like the New York City Businessmen, there are plenty of voices out there trying to tell you and me how to live our best life. And most of them sound something like this. What you need to do is work more so you can make more money, so you can buy more stuff, and that'll make you happy. Every day, marketers are marketing to us this idea that, and then constantly selling us this version of the good life. Like, buy this car and you'll be happy. You're going to go on off-road adventures. Listen, you are not going on safari in your Land Rover, okay? But the most adventure you're going to have is trying to dodge potholes on the 287. That's about it, okay? Buy this, buy this certain brand of clothes and you're going to feel sexy and sophisticated. <laughs> buy this product and you're going to be really, really happy. This is what we're sold every day. We might, say, we might call this the gospel of America. The gospel of America. The more stuff you have the happier you will be. In fact, some sociologists have claimed that materialism, not atheism, has replaced Christianity as the new dominant system of meaning in Western culture. Because for many people, things are not just things. They're actually a form of identity. Like there's this sense of I am what I buy. The brands that you wear, the house that you own, the car that you drive, that is really 
which shows your value. That determines your value and determines your self-worth in the culture that we're living in. And so the name of the game is work harder, make more money so you can upgrade your life with better stuff so you'll be happier. But the reality is we're not happier. All the research is pointing to the fact that we're not happier. In fact, Greg Easterbrook in his book, The Progress Paradox, he said this, adjusting for population growth, 10 times as many people in the Western nations today suffer from unipolar depression or unremitting bad feelings without a specific cause than did half a century ago. Americans and Europeans have more of everything except happiness. If you believe the idea that the more stuff you have, the happier you will be, then happiness is always going to be out of reach. It's just one purchase away. I got a friend from college. Uh, his name's Vic, and he became a successful financial advisor after college. And we've kind of lost touch in recent years, but I remember early on when we would call to check in and see how each other were doing, there was this sense that he was just always one purchase away from being set. I remember when he got the house. After he got the house, it was like, man, I just got to get the right car. And then after he got the right car, I remember calling him up and he's like, now I just got to get my boat and I'm going to be all set. And after he got the boat, it was like, after I have the first million in the bank, I'm going to be all set. It was just like always one more thing. In fact, somebody famously once asked John D. Rockefeller, the most wealthiest man in the whole United States of America, at one point in time, they said, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Now, besides the fact that the American gospel makes happiness elusive, it also makes our lives busier. It causes us to live with more hurry. In fact, Alan Fadling in his book, Unhurried Life, in Unhurried Life, he said this, the drive to possess is an engine for hurry. See, the more stuff you have, the more stuff you have to maintain, and the more hours you have to work to climb up the ladder of success to have it all. In church, all of this is leaving our souls weary. We know it, don't we? We know it deep down on the inside, like this modern way of living and the value that it places on material possessions. It's leaving our souls weary. We're stressed out. We're tired. We're exhausted. But what if there was a way off of this merry-go-round of materialism and sanity? Like we need a way out. What if the life that you always wanted is available to you now in Jesus Christ? What if the life you desire is one you can already have, one that is already within your grasp, like the Mexican fisherman who already had a great life? Here's what Jesus said, John chapter 10, verse 10, and I love this from the message paraphrase. He said, a thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. He was talking about the enemy. He was talking about the devil. He said, but I came so they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. How many of you would say, that sounds pretty good? Jesus says there is a quality of life that you can experience now if you will follow me. Jesus invites you and me into a different way of life. Not just a life in heaven one day, but a quality of life, eternal life, a certain life that we can experience in the here and now as we live in his kingdom. See, following the way of Jesus leads to experiencing the life of Jesus. I want to remind you, we talked about this in week one. It's not just about believing in Jesus. It's not just about believing in Christianity. It's about following Jesus and the life that he modeled and the, and the way that he showed us to live. And so in this series, what we've been doing, we've been discussing some of the core spiritual practices that Jesus modeled for us to help us eliminate hurry from our lives and to experience the rest that Jesus offers to us for our weary souls. 
So today I want to talk to you about the spiritual practice of simplicity. Simplicity. I want to talk to you about how we relate to money and possessions. And I know what you're thinking right now. Oh, great. I came to church on the Sunday when the pastor's talking about money. I could have slept in today. I knew I should have slept in today. Hang in there. It's going to be good news. It's not going to be a guilt trip. Come on, how many of you know life and life more abundantly sounds pretty good? That's what we really want. We want the life that Jesus has for us. Let's define simplicity this way, this practice of simplicity. The intentional promotion of things we most value in the removal of everything that distracts us from them. John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he gives that definition, really great definition. The intentional promotion of the things that we most value, the things that we know really matter in life, and the removal, the simplifying of everything that distracts us from them. Now, some people call this minimalism. There's this popular movement in today's world called minimalism, but in spiritual terms, the spiritual practice is simplicity. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, he actually has already told us what we should most value. He's already told us. It's called the Great Commandment. It's an open book quiz. It's in, it's in the Bible. You can read it. Jesus gave us the, the Great Commandment. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said it all boils down to loving God with everything you have and loving the people around you who are made in his image. That's it. That's what we should most value. Now, Jesus had a lot to say about how we handle money and possessions. Don't get mad at me. Just read the Gospels for yourself. Jesus talked a whole lot more about money than I preach about it on Sundays, okay? But let me just show you one passage of Scripture that Jesus, where Jesus deals with this issue. And this is from his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And this captures the essence of this practice of simplicity and the peace that living this way brings to our lives. So let's jump into it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 25, then we'll skip to verse 31. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I love that word vermin, you know, like rats. Like Jesus knew one day, like New York City people were going to hear this sermon, right? <laughs> Verse 20. <laughs> but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moss and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And then skip to verse 31. He says, but seek first his kingdom. Seek first the Father, God's kingdom, and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Wow. In a world that constantly tells us that we need more to be happy, Jesus comes along and he flips that upside down. And he says, no, actually what you need is less. You need to learn to simply live in the kingdom of God with your good, loving, heavenly Father. I want to give you four keys to embracing simplicity. I want to give you the why before I give you the what. Four keys to embracing simplicity. I hope you'll take some notes today. These are based on Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. This is some good stuff, folks. Here we go. Number one, first key is this. Invest in eternal things 
instead of temporary things. Jesus would say to you and me, if you want to embrace this life of simplicity, if you want a life of rest, if you want peace, if you want to know how to live in my kingdom, then I would encourage you to invest in eternal things instead of or more than temporary things. Look at this again, verse 19 through 21. Jesus said, don't, don't do what the world's telling you to do. Don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth, treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Come on, in heaven, nobody can touch your stuff. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus says, he tells us, do not spend all of your time and energy and effort investing in things in this life that can be taken away from you. Anybody in here ever had something stolen from you before? Nobody? Come on, I have. I have. I was thinking about when I was in college. One time somebody broke into my car and they stole my CD player. How many of you remember when we had CD players in our cars back in the day? Oh, I'm not just talking about the factory installed CD player. I'm talking about back in the day when you bought a car and then you went to Circuit City. Come on, somebody. And you got a good CD player. Some of y'all had like a five, six, you know, disc changing CD player. Some of the millennials in here, y'all don't even know what I'm talking about. Like y'all had CD players in your car back in the day. And I remember, I don't even know what generation it is. Millennials are getting older now. I don't know what, what generation Z, whatever y'all are. I remember one day I opened my car and there were just wires hanging out. Somebody jacked my CD player. And I was a broke college student. It cost me a lot of money to save up and buy another CD player. But here's what Jesus is saying to us. Everything that you own right now will eventually belong to someone else. Hey, let that land on you again. Let me say that to you again. I don't care how big your house is, how nice a car you drive, your clothes. Everything that you and I own, we are not taking it with us, folks. Jesus reminds us we need this clarity. You can't take it with you. Somebody's going to own everything you own right now. He says, but instead, store up treasure in heaven. Now, what does that mean for us? In other words, Jesus would say, invest in the things that matter to God. His kingdom, helping people in need, serving the poor. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let me tell you something. Jesus is not after your money. Hello, he's God. He has everything he needs. Jesus is not after your money. He's after your heart. He just knows that how you spend your money reveals where your heart ultimately is. Don't get quiet on me this morning. He knows that where and how you spend your money, it reveals your priorities. I love the message paraphrase of verse 21. It puts it this way. The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Isn't that powerful? Like what you invest in, that shows where you ultimately want to be. Are you investing in the things of heaven and eternity? It's kind of like buying a retirement condo in Florida. Come on, how many of you would say Florida sounds pretty good right about now? This cold weather we're having, we could, I think one day when we all get older, we should just retire and we should have a redemption retirement community in South Florida. Wouldn't that be good? Come on, we're just going to have a geriatrics version of redemption. We're all going to be on the beach together. We're going to get old together, but we're all going to be really tan. It's going to be beautiful. I think we should do it one day. (laughs) But when you have a retirement home in Florida, you're investing in it now. Why? Because you're going to live there one day. You're hustling and you're grinding now. So one day you can live the good life (laughs) on the beach in in South Florida. Come on, Jesus says you got to invest in where you ultimately want to end up. When you invest in the kingdom of God, the things of God, you are showing where your ultimate priorities are, that your hope isn't in this life, but it's in the life to come with Jesus. Oh, this is so good. You say, well, how do you actually invest in eternal things? I don't know how that works, you know. 
in the real world because we're New Yorkers, really savvy investors. But how does that work in, in, in investing in eternal things? Well, the Apostle Paul makes this really practical for us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. He said, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. How many of you know you can, you can make it and you can lose it? Money in this world can be so uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Notice that God is not a killjoy, and he doesn't say you can't enjoy your money at all. Here's what he says, verse 18. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation in the coming age, the age to come with Jesus in eternity, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. There it is. You want to know the essence of real life, the good life, the blessed life. It's a generous life. It's a life that prioritizes the things of God. Now, in case you think this verse doesn't apply to you, because Paul addresses the the rich people, you say, well, that's good. I'm off the hook. I'm not one of those rich people, Pastor Jeremy. Well, guess what? Most of us living in the New York City area are the top 1% of the world's richest population in terms of our annual salary. You say, not me. Google your salary. Google it. Look it up for yourself. I'm not talking about America. In global terms, compared to most of the world, those of us, what it takes to live in the New York City area, we're in the top 1% of the world's richest population. So congratulations, you won the lottery. You are rich. And this scripture applies to you and me. And Paul tells us that to be rich in good deeds and to be generous is to be rich in the kingdom of God. That's not what our culture tells us. Jesus, the apostle Paul, scripture comes along and it's a countercultural message and says to really be rich in the kingdom of God, it's actually the opposite. It's to be generous. It's not to live with arrogance. It's not to find your self-worth by how much money you have in the bank and what kind of car you drive, what kind of clothes you wear. It's to, it's to be generous toward the kingdom of God and especially to those in need. That's how you take hold of life that is really life, the real life that brings true and lasting fulfillment. And deep down in our bones, don't we know it's true? Like we didn't need a sermon to know it's already true. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to know this is true. What we just need is a wake-up call every now and then to, to remind us of where life really is. Here's the second thing. We're talking about some keys to embrace simplicity. Number two, Jesus would say, fix your perspective. Fix your perspective. Look at verse 22 again. He said, the eye, Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, what is this whole eye thing really about? Well, this was a popular expression during Jesus' time. See, if a person was greedy, they were said to have an evil eye or a bad eye. So whenever you see that expression in scripture, that's what it's talking about. It's an idiom that doesn't make sense to us. But in Jesus's time, if you were greedy, you were said to have a bad eye. If your eye was healthy and working properly, that meant that you lived with intentionality and you saw the world around you clearly, which means you saw the needs of the poor and you responded to them. If your eye was bad, then you were blind to the needs of the poor and the people around you. In other words, your perspective determines the way you see the world and that impacts the way you handle your money. And so Jesus would say, you got to fix your perspective. I'm not preaching to you today. I'm preaching to myself. I got a perspective adjustment twice last year. I went to Tegucigalpa, Honduras twice last year. Many of you know that we 
work with a wonderful organization there called One Child. Uh, so many people in our church sponsor a child, and thank you to those of you who do. And we're helping, you know, release children from poverty, breaking the cycle of poverty. And let me tell you, I've been to Honduras before, but twice last year I got a good perspective adjustment because when you see the, the kind of poverty that people are living in there, it's heartbreaking. People living in shanty houses that are just built from scrap wood and dirt floors and trash everywhere, and people out on the streets begging and just selling trinkets, just trying to make it. And you're looking around wondering, like, how are these people? People gonna make it. And so many of them are making it. And it was a good reminder for me. And every now and then I forget. Every now and then I find myself complaining. I find myself worrying about money. I found myself comparing what I have to other people. And the Holy Spirit will remind me. He'll give me a little wake-up call and a little reminder of like, Jeremy, you already have everything you need. You are so rich. You are so blessed. Like we need a perspective change. See, if you always focus on what you don't have, then you'll never be satisfied. But if you're thankful for what you already have, you'll experience contentment. See, gratitude is so powerful because gratitude transforms your perspective and causes you to see that everything you have is already a gift. It's already a gift. You know, comparison does the opposite. It's been said that comparison is the thief of joy. What do we do? We get on social media and we compare what we have to other people and we think our life sucks. We go on vacation and then we see somebody else who had a better vacation. We buy a car and then we see somebody who bought a better car and then we compare and we have a lack of contentment. But gratitude transforms everything you already have into a gift. So can I encourage you to wake up in the morning if you don't know what else to pray and just begin to thank God. God, I thank you for the roof over my head. God, I thank you for the bed that I slept in last night. God, I thank you for this cup of coffee. Can I get an amen, somebody? God, I thank you that I'm not wondering where my next meal is coming from today. I thank you for my friends, for my family, for my health. There are 10,000 blessings that you and I take for granted every day. If we would just wake up and change our perspective, Jesus says you got to shift your perspective. We're talking about some keys to embracing simplicity. Number three, choose your master. Jesus would say, choose your master. Look at Matthew 6, verse 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Notice that Jesus doesn't say you shouldn't try to serve both God and money. He didn't say that. He just gives us a principle about what life is really like. He says, no, no, you actually can't do both. It's just impossible. You simply cannot live the way of Jesus and love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself and also be sucked into materialism and overconsumption. Why? Because there's just not enough room in your heart. You, you got to pick one. There's not enough room in your heart for both. You will end up worshiping money. And let me tell you, church, that's what most people worship in our culture. We got plenty of people around us who don't consider themselves to be religious, but how many of you know everybody's worshiping something? For most people, it's material possessions. It's money and what it can buy. And let me just say this to you. I know this isn't an easy message today and I'm challenging you, but we need to hear it. For most of us, the number one thing that's competing for our heart's ultimate allegiance is money and possessions and what money can buy. And see, money is a false god because it promises what only God can actually provide. It promises security and purpose and dignity and worth. But how many of you know the truth is only God, your heavenly father, your creator, is the one who can ultimately offer you those things. And so money becomes a terrible, terrible taskmaster. It's not that having money is wrong. The problem is when money has you, when it rules every aspect of your life, when it defines your self-worth. Money makes a terrible God because it's never satisfied. 
never satisfied. It always just takes a little bit more. And so scripture doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. No, Paul tells us, the apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, he says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. It's making money the most important thing. It's making money your God. That is the root of all kinds of evil. Let me give you an example, okay? This week, I spent some time in jury duty at the federal courthouse in White Plains. Now listen to me. Be careful if you start praying for patience because God may allow your name to get picked for jury duty. I will no longer call the DMV the worst bureaucratic entity in the United States of America. It is certainly our legal system. It is painful, okay? I mean, it is archaic the way they do it. They interview everybody. You're going to answer all these questions. I was trying to give the questions, the answers that made me look like a terrorist or a bigot so they would excuse me. I know, don't judge me. You've, you would do the same thing. It was, let's just say, it was purgatory, okay? I was like, Lord, I feel like I'm on trial here for a crime, being purged of my sins here in jury duty. And so after three days, I finally got excused. It was like, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Lord have mercy, I had a skip in my step. It was amazing. I ran out of that courthouse so fast. <laughs> jury duty, man. It was painful. It was painful. But the two cases that I sat on as a prospective juror were both fraud cases. One was a case of mail fraud and the other was a case of wire fraud. Think about this. The love of, of money landed somebody in federal court facing felony charges. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. So you can be wealthy or you can be poor and be ruled by money. Jesus says you got to break free and you got to choose who's going to be the master of your life. Who's going to be the master of your life? Is it going to be money and possessions and the rat race or is it going to be your loving heavenly father? Amen. I hope this is helping somebody today. Amen. Jesus gives us some keys to living a blessed life, a good life, life in the kingdom of God. It's a simple life. Verse, here's the, here's the fourth one. Principle number four is learn to trust God as your provider. We're going to look at verse 25 and then verse 31. Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And then look at verse 31. He says, but seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom. He actually goes on to describe how God provides for the birds of the air. And he says, if God can feed the birds of the air, how much more are you worth to him? God, God will take care of you. If God can clothe the lilies of the, of the valley, the flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will he clothe you? And then he gets to verse 31. But seek first his, God's kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. Notice that Jesus makes a connection between materialism and worry. He says, do not worry. Don't worry. See, we worry about the things that we're fixated on, don't we? This chasing after money all the time, it causes, us, it causes us worry. How many of you know that peace is in short supply in the world that we're living in today? How many of you are just surrounded by people who are just so at peace, so unbothered by what's happening in the world, so unbothered by the pace of this world and its priorities? No, it's in short supply. See, here's what Jesus says. The, the way that we handle money, it reveals whether or not we trust God. Whether or not that we trust that God is really our provider. Not our words, but our wallets reveal if we trust God. And so often we end up worshiping our careers and we end up worshiping money because we don't really believe deep down that God is our provider. And let me just sidebar for a moment here. This is why giving in the offering is such a powerful spiritual practice. We do this every week. Um, yeah, it's to supply the needs of our church and to fund the ministry of our church. But so I'm going to tell you something that is powerful for those of you who aren't givers yet. I just want to encourage you. When you give, it activates your faith. 
See, it actually causes you to trust God more. It's counterintuitive because you think, wait, if I have less money, I'm going to worry more. No, it's amazing. So like God knows what he's doing. Once again, God doesn't need your money. He's God. How many of you know God invented giving for us? And so when you give, it actually causes you in a very tangible way to acknowledge God as your provider and you begin to trust him even more. And this is why so often generous people are people who are unbothered and unworried because they have contentment. I was thinking about this this, this week and I was, I was thinking about my, my parents. You know, what I've noticed over the years as I get older and I have kids and raising my kids and living life and adulting, I've come to recognize like, man, my parents just aren't rattled by much. You know, I've watched them go through so many seasons of difficulty and health problems and different surprise financial challenges like we all have. And I've just noticed that they're not really bothered by much. And, you know, they've never really had a whole lot of money for most of their career. My dad's semi-retired now. They pastored a really small church. But here's what I recognize. They're unbothered and they're unworried. Why? Because they've learned to trust God for years. For years, they cultivated a deep faith and they just trusted God. They've learned to trust God and that trust brings contentment. Brings a contentment over your life. And this is why compared to most of the world, we're rich and yet we're so often stressed out about money. Why? Because we lack contentment. We don't really trust that God is our provider, that he's going to take care of us, that he's going to give us everything we need. Not everything we want, but everything we need shall be given to you as well. And Jesus tells us to seek first his kingdom, his kingdom, everything that you have need of will be given to you as well. Why? Because God is a good, loving, heavenly father. Do you believe that? Do we believe that about him? Now, here's the question I want to ask you as we come to the close of the message. What if Jesus was right? What if Jesus was, was right? The Jesus who we worship, the Jesus who we lift our hands to, we amen the sermons, but do we let the truth land on you? What if Jesus was really right? Like, right, what if he actually knew what he was talking about in terms of how we should live, and how we should relate to money and our material possessions. Like, what if following his way actually brings us peace? See, if you don't like the results that everyone around you is getting, if you don't like the results that our culture is getting, do you like the results? Are you paying attention to how people are living these days? People are losing their minds in this crazy rat race. If you don't like the results that everyone else is getting and we recognize that modern life is driving us all crazy and causing our souls to be weary, maybe we should give Jesus' way a chance. Yes. Maybe we should give it a try. And so let me just leave you with a few practical things to help you put simplicity into practice, okay? And I don't have time to cover all this. Buy the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. John Mark Homer's a lot better than me. Just get the book, okay? Let me give you a few tips for practicing putting simplicity into practice. Number one is cut back, cut back. See, for most of us, we need to cut back on our spending and learn to live on a budget and learn to live with less. Now, I know this is personal. I understand that I'm preaching to a lot of you and some of you are very financially sound and you know more about how to manage wealth better than me. I understand that. I get that. This is personal. But for most of us, the vast majority of us in here, we need to learn to cut back. Less is more. We need less, we need less spend, our, spend our money wiser. So we need to learn, learn how to live on a budget. Okay? In fact, we have a, a new cycle of life groups that are kicking off. And one of the groups we're going to be offering, one of our growth groups, is called Financial Peace University. Okay? Some of you need some financial peace. How many of you could use some financial peace? Um, I would encourage you to check out that class. It's going to help you learn how to budget, help you learn how to live wisely, help you get out of debt. Most of us need to cut back some. Okay? I'm not telling you what kind of car to drive. I'm not judging you for what vacations you take when I see you on social media. I'm happy for you. This is between you and God. It's personal. But I'll just tell you, 
Jesus warned us, we gotta be careful. Most of us need to cut back. Number two, clear out, clear out. We need to give some things away and declutter our lives, really. We need to give some things away. If you're not using it, one of the simplest ways to embrace simplicity is to give some things away. Can I give you a homework assignment? Let's make this practical. Go home, go through your closet, go through your garage, find some things that you're not using and give them away. I do this every couple of months. It's so freeing. It's amazing. I love to declutter. I already give everything away. I give one of our kids away if my wife would love me. Here, just take it. <laughs> Get rid of it. We don't need it. <laughs> Clear some things out. Give something away. And it's amazing. Every now and then I'll go through my wardrobe and I'll find like a sweater or something that I haven't worn for like two years. And you know what? I start trying to convince myself to keep it. Well, maybe I'll wear it. No. Listen to me. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to me today. No. Give it away. Bless somebody else with it. You don't need it. Clear out. Number three, practice gratitude. Practice gratitude. Every time you find yourself complaining about what you don't have, start thanking God for what you already do have. Practice gratitude. It's so powerful. Number four, embrace generosity. Embrace generosity. You see, simplicity helps us live with margin so that we can lay up treasure in heaven. How many of you know it's hard to be generous if you're broke and you're overextended in your finances? Okay? Don't point to anybody next to you or nudge somebody. This is for you. It's hard to be generous if you're just caught up in materialism. So you have, you have to embrace generosity. This is the goal. This is the, this, is the, this is the end. The means is simplicity. The end is so that we can be generous toward the kingdom of heaven, toward what God actually cares about, okay? Once again, I'm not preaching to you today. I'm preaching to me because what I find is I need a reminder every now and then. What I find is I can get caught up in this culture that we're living in. I can get caught up with, in this idea that the more stuff I have, the happier I'm going to be, that I need this or I need that to be happier. That I need more money and more stuff to be happy, but I'm so thankful that every now and then God gives me a wake-up call. I love that, that definition of simplicity we looked at earlier because it said pl placing your value, your priority, what matters most. See, I think deep down on the inside, we actually know what matters most. Last year, I was in Honduras in February, and I got a reminder of what matters most when I met my sponsor child, Ruth, who I've been sponsoring for, we've been sponsoring for several years since she was a little girl, and now she's all grown up, 15 or 16, been waiting to meet her, and finally got to wrap arms around this kid. It was a tangible reminder, like, Jeremy, this is what matters. This is what matters, helping this kid, breaking the, the, the cycle of poverty in this kid's life. This matters. Church, let me tell you what matters. What matters is when we pack up 10,000 meals and send it to Ukraine, to people whose lives have been turned upside down. What matters is when we give money in the Christmas offering and we're able to send $25,000 to people in the Middle East who are just, their lives are just totally been upended by this war. When we get out and we serve our neighbors, when we feed people who are facing food insecurity right here in Westchester Church, church that's what matters. Deep down on the inside, we know we need less stuff. We need more love in our lives. We need less money and more time for relationships with our kids, with our family, with the people we love. We need less stuff that's about us and more things that help us to live with eternal perspective to make a difference in people's lives. Isn't that what we want? Deep down on the inside, we know that's the stuff that matters. When we get to the end of our lives, we know that's the stuff that matters. Why do we keep getting sucked back into it? It's because of the culture that we're living in. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful for moments like this. I'm thankful for sermons like this that preach to me before they preach to you. 
that come along and wake us up and remind us of what really matters. Jesus is inviting you and me in to rest, to follow his way and to experience real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. When I was a kid, my dad used to always say something at the table. He used to say, we're the richest people in town. We would sit down to have a meal together. And my dad used to say, we're the richest people in town. And here's the reality. We didn't have that much money compared to the richest people in town. We had a nice house. We always had good food. We had what we needed. We went on decent, modest vacations. But the reality is we, we didn't have that much money. But we had the presence of God in our family. We had the presence of God in our home. We loved God. We loved each other. My parents served people. And let me tell you something. You can't put a price tag on that. You can't not put a price tag on the presence of God in your life. You cannot put a price tag on God using your life to expand his kingdom. God using your life to store up treasure in heaven. And so I'm going to pray that God will give you some ideas, some practical ideas how to work this out. I get it. We heard an inspirational message like this, and it's like, how do I live this out? I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would show every one of us, because this message lands on us in all different places, all different walks of life, all different levels of income. But it's the same message. Jesus says, follow me. Follow, follow me. Let me show you a different way of life. And so I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will give you some practical ways to walk this out. Come on, how many of you want that? How many of you want that? Would you just pray with me? Come on, let's just pray together right now. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you are a good, loving, heavenly Father. You want good things for us. Jesus, we thank you that you came to show us the way. You came to show us the way of eternal life, of real life, abundant life, life that is truly life. And Lord, today we're asking you to help us that you would forgive us for believing the lie that the more stuff we have, the happier we're going to be. When true fulfillment, when lasting joy is already within our, our grasp. And so, Lord, today we want to commit ourselves. We want to be those who store up treasure in heaven to care about the things that you care about. God, we're asking you to fix our perspective today, to help us to see not with the eyes of comparison, but with the eyes of gratitude. And Lord, today we are choosing you as our God. Somebody needs to make that your personal prayer today. Lord, we're choosing you again as our God. We don't want to serve things. We don't want to serve money. God, we want to serve you. We want to live life with you in your kingdom. We want to trust you. Lord, for those who are struggling financially right now, Lord, we trust that you are our provider and you're going to take care of us. We thank you for it. Father, I'm praying that as we enter into this way of life, God, I'm praying for your people rest for our weary souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like more information about our church, visit us online at redemptioncommunitychurch.org or follow us on social media.